So ladies and gentlemen, help me give Dr. Jim Schur a wonderful Biola welcome. Thank you very much. I'd like to open in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Abba, I pray the power of the Lord Jesus Christ drop upon this place to touch each heart. Father, each one of these young people is precious to you. And Father, you know exactly where their hearts are. You know what they're thinking You know their pains, their struggles, their joys. Exactly where they are, Lord, I pray that you would meet them by the power of God. That the power of the Holy Spirit would speak to their hearts this day. Father, I pray that beyond the science that would be talked about today, that they would experience something of the Holy Spirit that they will never forget. Father, that they would leave here tonight loving you more and more confident in the truth of Jesus Christ and the power of His resurrection. Lord, I commit this to you. Have mercy upon these young people. Pour out your grace for the glory of our Lord Jesus. For His glory, I pray. Amen. So I'd like to talk to you today about this topic, does science make faith obsolete? And uh, I'd like to start by telling you a little bit about our science. There's only one slide, this one, where I've compacted several different things that we've worked on in the recent past. And, and I'll just take it through. And, and so, so this thing in the upper left, we've learned how to make graphene at room temperature in the air using a laser writing machine that's used normally for cutting, say, aluminum or something, and, and we, we just use this to write on polyimide film, and now in a roll-to-roll fashion, we can do it 2D or 3D, and we've made a number of supercapacitors and batteries out of this material. We've made water purification systems out of this, so, so we, we, just, we just stumbled upon a gold mine uh, uh, with this project. We've learned how to split carbon nanotubes longitudinally, and if you split them longitudinally, what you get are you get ribbons of graphene. So imagine graphene is single layers of graphite that are one atom thick. And how would you make a ribbon? Well, if you take a tube like a straw and you slice it down one end, it will split. And what we do is we just treat it with with sodium potassium metal. And what it does is it it intercalates between the tubes and it splits it longitudinally because for the same reason that a water pipe splits longitudinally because you get relief of the pressure better that way. And then we get these ribbons and we've used these ribbons in, in, in a number of different applications, from de-icing applications and in batteries as conductors. But now we've most recently used these in, uh, here it talks about some of our medical work in the healing of spinal cords. That's work that just came out. We work on, 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 uh, in an area of, of uh, making memory from computers. This has been bought by a company and this is being brought into a new phase of memory. So rather than the transistor that has the source of drain and gate, this just has two-terminal memory. And it's called RAM, or resistive random access memory. And it's also transparent. So we can build it transparent on plastic film. 
We've made a number of inorganic supercapacitors. This has been uh, uh, licensed to an uh, auto manufacturer that makes electric vehicles using a supercapacitor for the acceleration because what we've learned, what, what, what uh, auto companies have learned, is that you can, if people will pay a lot of money to be able to accelerate quickly in their car. Most of the time, they just drive it at a normal speed, but, but the acceleration is what they will pay big money for. So you use supercapacitors for acceleration, then a much smaller battery for the elect electrical part of just driving along. So this will be the supercapacitor for the acceleration, and it's flexible. We built a number of carbon materials where we can absorb 150 weight percent of carbon, 150 weight percent uh, of CO2 inside these carbons, and we're using it to scrounge out CO2 from natural gas. Turns out to work extremely well. This has been licensed by a company called Apache, which is uh, a large oil company based in Houston. We've made graphene from a number of carbon sources, but this is the leg of an American cockroach. And you can put a cockroach lead on a piece of, of, of copper, heat it up to 1,000 degrees in an atmosphere of hydrogen, and you get very clean graphene, very clean graphene. And so we showed that any carbon source will convert into graphene at 1,000 degrees on copper. Any carbon source. And that's because carbon is most thermodynamically stable as the graphene form. And uh, so we wanted to take something of negative value and convert it into something of positive value. We took a Girl Scout cookie and did it. One box of Girl Scout cookies is $4. If you take all the carbon in a box of Girl Scout cookies and convert it into graphene and sell it as two centimeter squares, you could sell that graphene for $15 billion. So it shows you that the value of a compound is not in the cost of the element. The value of a compound is in the arrangement of the atoms into molecules and the superstructure that results from that. If you take a person, they've died, you cremate them, you convert them to CO2 and water, the value of that is less than a penny. What is the value, aside from the spiritual value, of just the mechanical portions of a human being? Mechanical and intellectual portions. It's utterly amazing. The value of something comes in the arrangements of the atoms into molecules. That's where the value comes from. <clears throat> We've made uh, graphene quantum dots. Graphene quantum dots cost $1 million per kilogram. We learned how to make them from coal, which is $60 per ton. In one step, this has been licensed to an Israeli company. Uh, they certainly saw the value in this. This is $90,000 worth of graphene quantum dots right there. <clears throat> and so those are going to be used in a number of applications, but that will greatly reduce the price. We've made carbon nanotubes fused to graphene, and this is going to be in our next generation of batteries, just amazing batteries. This has been licensed to another company, and, and the capacity of these, these batteries is just absolutely stunning. So... Um, this hopefully will be in, in, in next generations of batteries, so your cell phones will last much longer. Generally, they're still gonna, you're still going to have to charge them at least a day, at least once a day, because what, what they'll do is they'll increase the functionality. They won't allow you to just run longer. We, we have a number of different treatments. We, we've had uh, uh, drugs licensed for the treatment of traumatic brain injury, and this was developed for, for many of our soldiers coming back from the Middle East theater. And then also for stroke, traumatic brain injury is the number one disabler of young adults. Stroke is the number one disabler of older adults. And it works for both of those by sequestering the superoxide. 
We've worked, as I told you, on the healing of spinal cords. We have tattoo therapy. And this is carbon nanoparticles that alleviate autoimmune disease. When they're injected under the skin, it looks like a tattoo, which fades over a period of about a week. But tremendous results we've had with both rheumatoid arthritis and MS to date. And then we work also on drug delivery on carbon nanoparticles. We developed graphene oxide, a procedure for making graphene oxide that was licensed to uh, EMD Merck Corporation. And then another company, we licensed a process for trapping radioactive elements from water. Because if you have a nuclear waste disaster, nuclear spill, or if you do oil drilling or, or, or a mining and you go deep, you very often get radioactive material that comes up as a result after, after uh, 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 with, with the water as it comes up. And this is very good at trapping it. This is a sheet of graphene oxide plugging a hole. It's like if you take a piece of paper and you were to cover your, your, your finger and you push down, the paper sort of splays out. That's what happens with a sheet of graphene oxide. That's one atom thick sheet that then curls up on the corners. We use that for plugging holes in uh, uh, oil drilling so that you don't get leakage into the cavities that as you're drilling and you're under high pressure, those just uh, naturally plug the holes. Then we have this... This, this area of nanomachines. We've been working on this for several years and we built these little cars with these motors that you shine a light and the motors spin and push the cars along. The cars are only 2 nanometers by 3 nanometers so they, well, you can park 50,000 of these cars across the diameter of a human hair. That's how small they are. And so now what we've done is we've built, we've built nanosubmarines that have a, a peptide peg, uh, pendant so it has this pendant on it that will recognize a particular cell surface that you want to recognize. And then they have these little motors that spin at 3 megahertz. That's 3 million rotations per second. Then you shine a light and they just drill holes through cells. And so that's really fascinating. So that gives you kind of a composite overview of, of the research that we do. Here is, here's my, my current chemistry family. So that's my current research group. And these are the folks who actually do all the work. And, and, it, and it, it's really an amazing, an amazing sort of thing. They, they, they're in the lab doing all the work, and, and then I go out and talk about it, and I get all this glory for talking about their work. And, and the more I tell people that it really wasn't me, it was the students that did the work, the more magnanimous they think I am. <laughs> and, and so it's a, it's a very strange sort of career. I try to give them the credit, and, and, and uh, um, anyway, the that I end up getting much more than I deserve. But those are the folks that do the work. And I really love these young people. They put in a lot of time, and we spend a lot of time working together. And uh, um, we form rich relationships together. And I've had the joy of seeing many of them come to the Lord over their times working with me. And uh, uh, I'm thankful for that. Well, how did I become interested in chemistry? Well, I didn't start out being interested in chemistry. I, I enjoyed it in high school, but, but I, I really wanted to be a New York State trooper. That's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a New York State trooper, but I was colorblind, so I could not get into the academy. So at 17 years old, I realized I wasn't going to be able to get into the academy. I was, so I had, had gone to, to uh, uh, look into studying forensic science in college so that at least I'd work, say, in a crime lab or something like that. But my dad said to me, well, why don't you just get a general degree in chemistry and then you can, you can specialize in forensics after that. And what amazes me about my father's advice is I was 17 years old and at 17 I took his advice. And, uh, and, and uh, I'm glad I did because I, I, I then I took organic chemistry and I just loved it. This is uh, the molecule strychnine. Just amazing 
organic chemistry. I, I, I really loved that, that, uh, that topic. I loved it so much that as an undergraduate, what I used to do is, is you know, the undergraduate textbooks are like 1,200 pages. They were even 1,200 pages back then. And so, so we would get assigned problems in the book to do. I would, of course, do all those problems, but then I would do all the other problems that hadn't yet been assigned, that had not even been assigned. And, and, uh, and so I would go on Friday nights and just work problems, find an empty, empty classroom and work problems. And at Syracuse University, all the rooms were empty on Saturdays because all the students were at football games. And I never went to any football games. And I would just study organic chemistry because I really loved it. I mean, if you, when, you, when you get a subject you really love, I mean, it, it's just fun to do it. It's just like a job. I mean, if, if, you, if you have a career that you really love, you just, you just spend a lot of time doing it just because you like it. And so I really got into organic synthesis. For me, that was just, just a lot of fun to do. And I see molecular structure in everything. In everything, I see molecular structure. And, and this, is, this is important because, you know, I, I see hair. I know why your hair has the features that it has. It, 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 it's, it's these peptide strands and this, these, this hydrogen bonding that holds it in these arrangements. You, you take carpet fiber. You know, you can take a carpet fiber and, and, and if you pull one of those fibers out, just this thin little fiber that's as thin as a hair or thinner, it, it'll stand up four or six inches high and not even fall over. That's amazing. Try to stand up a rubber band, it falls over. Why does a carpet fiber stand up like that? And the reason you make carpet fibers like that is so that when you walk over it, it doesn't leave footprints where people walk. And you learn all about why this happens. Why does a tree have the features that it has? Why does a tree, you run your car into the tree, the car is destroyed and the tree is just sitting there, it's fine. Why is this? And, and you learn about these carbohydrate strands that, that have hydrogen bonding between them that make it. And you end up seeing molecular structure in everything. You look at people and you just think about molecules, the molecules that, that construct these people. And this is what, what happens to me is I see molecular structure in everything. And this is going to become important as I begin to speak about the things I'm going to speak about today because I want you to understand not just my worldview. I want you to understand what's in my mind when I'm thinking about these sorts of topics. It's molecular structure in everything. I was, I was uh, 18 years old. I just turned 18. I went to college. And I, I was born in a secular Jewish home in New York City. I grew up just north of the city. And uh, um, I didn't know much about Jesus Christ. In fact, I knew very little. I didn't even know that there was a claim on the table that Jesus had died for my sins. How could that be? I am sure that I must have heard it on TV programs and, 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 and read things, but I, I, didn't, I didn't even realize that. Didn't, didn't realize that there was, a, there was a real claim on the table. And, and so I was, I was doing laundry in the laundry room. It was August of my freshman year. And there was a young man in there who was on the Syracuse University football team. And, I, and we got to talking, and I asked him if he wanted to play football when he graduated, play pro ball. And he says, oh, no, I'm not good enough for that. I said, well, what do you want to do? And he said, lay ministry. I didn't know what he meant. I said, I, w I don't know what that means. What do you mean lay ministry? He said, uh, like maybe a missionary. Missionary? It's 1977. They don't need missionaries. We've got TV. <clears throat> Just put it on TV. You don't have to go anyplace. Did you ever think of that? And he said, I'd like to give you an illustration of the gospel. 
and, and I didn't know what he was talking about. I thought he was going to draw me a picture. And he did. He drew me this picture. <clears throat> Took a piece of paper and he, <clears throat> he drew people on one side of a chasm and God on the other. And he drew sin in between. And he, he, had, he had a Bible with him. He said, I'd like you to read from this Bible. And he, he, Roman, he opened it up to the book of Romans and he had me read a verse and it says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I looked at him and I said, I haven't sinned. We're all sinners. I said, I haven't sinned. I never robbed a bank. I never killed anyone. How could I be a sinner? In modern secular Judaism, we don't think about sin. We don't. I mean, I know in Christianity, it's like every thought, oh no, you must have sinned again. <laughs> Judaism is so much simpler. You go to the synagogue once a year, everything's taken care of. Nobody bothers you. You never think about this stuff. Then he opened up to another verse. And why of all verses he picked this one out, I don't know. But he opened up to another verse in, in, uh, in Matthew. And he said, read this verse. And it was the words of Jesus. And Jesus said, if you look upon a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery with her already in your heart. That was a very unusual verse to share with someone when you're sharing the gospel. <coughs> It was particularly, hit me particularly hard because I was 18 years old and I was addicted to pornography. There was no internet in those days, but I started working in a gas station that was just outside New York City on the parkway there. And, and it was on the highway and, and uh, I worked both sides of the road. There were two gas stations owned by the same person. And I started working there when I was 14 and I told the guy when I, I, that I was 16 and nobody checked paperwork in those days. She says, is he 16? He's 16. How am I supposed to? <clears throat> and I realized that, that the, the salesmen would throw away their, their pornographic magazines on their way home on Friday nights, and I would just go collect them from the trash cans. By the time I was 18, I was deeply into pornography. And I didn't think anybody knew it. I was newly in college. I didn't bring my magazines with me. I was too ashamed. And, uh, uh, and of all verses to read, and it really hit me, and I remember saying to him, if that's the definition of sin, I'm a sinner. Then he, we shared a few more verses about how, how while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. And he drew this cross and he talked about how people can get to God through Jesus Christ. And I didn't know, I didn't understand what he was talking about, but all I knew is from that day that I was a sinner. And I started meeting Christians. The term born again was being used a lot in those days. And... Uh, um, because Jimmy Carter had just, just uh, uh, finished being president and this term was being used a lot of being born again. And I didn't understand and I met all these people that they were saying that they were born again. And I found that Christian people were very nice to me. For example, I'd go down to the cafeteria and they'd invite me to sit in their little group and they'd be laughing about something and it was a laughter I had never known. Whenever I was with a group of people and they were laughing, somebody was in pain because of that laughter. They were laughing at somebody, but not this group. They were just laughing and nobody was in pain when they were laughing. It's a very unusual group. They invited me to a Bible study. So I remember sitting in on a Bible study according to the, uh, uh, the, the, the Gospel according to John. November 7th, 1977, I was all alone in my dormitory room, that room right there, room 1812 of Lawrence and Dormitory. <laughs> 
And I was all alone and I got down on my knees. And I don't know what prompted me to get down on my knees. Christians normally sat when they prayed. That's what I noticed. Jews normally stand when they pray. And I said, Lord, forgive me because I am a sinner. I am a sinner. Come into my life. And all of a sudden, there was this amazing rush of forgiveness. And I was startled. Somebody was standing in my room. My roommate wasn't there. Someone was standing. And I opened my eyes to see who's in my room. And I didn't see anybody, but there was a presence. I had never known. And I just started weeping. I wasn't scared. I wasn't afraid. I didn't feel condemned. Just an amazing presence that just caused me to weep. I didn't want to get up off my knees. This presence was so wonderful. And I remember after that night, I never told anybody. I didn't know what I was going to do. What's this Jewish kid going to do? What do I say? And about two weeks later, the guy who had shared with me saw me walking across the dormitory floor there. And he he said, he said, Jim, have you received the Lord? Have you invited Jesus in your heart? I said, I... I don't know. I think I have. Why do you ask? He says, you haven't stopped smiling for weeks. (laughs) Something happened to me that day. And I asked him, I said to him, how can I maintain this? How can I maintain this closeness? I feel all of a sudden close to God. He said to me, he said, I've talked to many people that seem close to God and every one of them, I've asked them, do you read your Bible every day? And they say, yes. Then I talk to other people that never seem very close to God, but they're Christians. I ask them, do you read your Bible every day? They say, no. I said, I understand. That's digital. You read your Bible every day, you'll stay close to God. You don't, you won't. For almost 40 years, I've read my Bible every day. I start in the, in the book of Genesis. That happens to be the first book of the Bible. I start in chapter 1, verse 1, and I read right through to Revelation chapter 22. When I'm done, I start again. For almost 40 years, I've done this. When I'm done, I start again. And I say, Lord, speak to me through the Scriptures. I was influenced by, <clears throat> by many great Christian men. There was Dr. T. E. Koshi, which, who was the evangelical chaplain at Syracuse University, a man named Brother Bak Singh from India, Professor Brosma at, 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 uh, at, at Purdue University, and then uh, uh, Professor Buck Hatch, who was at Columbia Bible College and Seminary, which is now Columbia International University, when I was teaching at the University of South Carolina he used to come and visit my class and we would just sit and talk. These men poured their lives into me and I owe them to pour my life into others. These men poured their lives into me. I started reading the scriptures every day and it started to really impact my life. Let me begin to talk about this. Does science make faith obsolete? Well, science has never, never shaken my faith. And I'm not the only one. This is Lord Kelvin. He, we get our, our, he, he was a, 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 a physical chemist, a dynamicist. And, and so, so uh, he, we get our Kelvin scale from him. He said, uh, he said, I've long felt that there was a general impression that the scientific world believes science has discovered ways of explaining all the facts of nature without adopting any definite belief in a creator. I've never doubted that impression was utterly groundless. Science actually strengthens my faith. Lord Kelvin said something similar. He said, the more thoroughly I conduct scientific research, the more I believe science excludes atheism. If you think strongly enough, you will be forced by science to the belief in God, which is the foundation of all religion. 
you know, to be a scientist with faith brings great excitement. Ronald Ross discovered the, that malaria comes from a parasite in, a, in the stomach of a mosquito. He was the first to discover this. And as you read his writings, he was a physician working as a scientist in India to try to understand what was the genesis, the origin of, of, uh, of malaria, which at the time they thought was just the, the, the sulfur smell from swamps they thought caused malaria. And it talks about how his last remaining eyepiece was cracked on his microscope and was rusted because of the sweat that would fall off of him. He couldn't have the, 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 the native uh, uh, Indian servants fanning him because it would blow away the dissected mosquito parts. And on the night that he discovered that there's a parasite in the stomach of malaria-carrying mosquitoes, he wrote a poem. He penned this poem to his wife. So here's Ronald Ross. And he penned this poem. He said, This day, relenting God has placed within my hand a wondrous thing, and God be praised at his command. Seeking his secret deeds with tears and toiling breath, I find thy cunning seeds, O miserable, murdering death. I know this little thing a myriad men will save. O death, where is thy sting, thy victory, O grave? You cannot read that poem without understanding that this was a man who knew the scriptures. There's an excitement that comes by being a scientist with faith that you would never know if you didn't have faith. I'll share something from my own experience. I had the great blessing of, of, of moving up very quickly in my career because God blessed me. God just blessed me over and over again, much greater than I deserved. And I got tenure very quickly. I, I never came up for tenure. I got it after three years. They just gave it to me. So I never knew what it's like to sweat. I never worried about it. Well, shortly after I'd gotten tenure, I'd, I'd been invited back to Purdue University to share about my research. I had just, just gotten tenure and, and uh, um, I was invited back to share. And, and, and it was, a little, bit, it was a, little, a, a little bit intimidating to me because my professor, Professor Nagishi, he was a, a, a Japanese man. He's a Japanese man. And, and no matter how hard I worked in his group, and I brought him good results. He, would, he never got beyond this. He would say, pretty good for your level. <laughs> I never got past the man's waist. And here I was going to be presenting to him. And, and, uh, uh, and I was praying in, 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 in this building, in the Purdue Memorial Union. The, the university has a very nice uh, hotel because they have a, a, a program in hotel and restaurant management. And I was reading this verse that morning. Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And as I read that, I said, Lord, you're raising my faith, because I pray before every one of my seminars. I pray that God would pour out and bless people. Even my science seminars. And I was praying that morning for the seminar that I was going to give in the chemistry department. And so when I read this, I said, Lord, you're raising my faith. I pray it's the best seminar ever in that department. The best ever. And I said, Lord, how am I going to know it's the best? The department's been there a hundred years. How am I going to know? I said, Lord, if it's the best, I pray that, that my professor, there he is, H. Nagishi, 
He won the Nobel Prize in 2010, but this was back in 1993. 1993 was just a regular guy. All of a sudden, 2010, he becomes the famous guy. But I said, Professor Nagishi will be there. I pray that I get none of this four-year level stuff. I pray that he says it was a super seminar. It's not a word that he normally uses. I pray that he just, if he says it's a super seminar, I'll know that it was the best seminar ever in that department. Well, I gave that seminar, and I knew God had blessed. When I got done, Professor Nagishi was sitting right on the end, right on the front row. He stood up, he raised his hand, just as soon as I got done, he, super, super! <laughs> sitting right behind him was this man, H.C. Brown, who had won the Nobel Prize in 1979. H.C. Brown won it for, for the hydroboration reaction. So Nagishi had worked for H.C. Brown, so H.C. Brown was like, like my grandfather in an academic sense. And so I went to, to, and he was in his 80s at the time, and, I, and, I, and I, I came down and I shook his hand. He was sitting right in the, in the second row there, right on the end. It was just his normal seat. Nobody took that seat. Brown always sat in that seat. And as I shook his hand, he said to me, I, wa I, I want you to know something. That was the best seminar I've ever seen in my life. And I said, that's very kind of you, sir, to say that. And in typical Nobel Prize winning fashion, he said, I'm not saying it to be kind, I really mean it. <laughs> you know, God has a way of confirming his word. If we will walk with him and believe his word, if we will believe his word, he does amazing things through our lives. And he brings an excitement. I see this sort of excitement all the time in the work that I do. Well, how does a cell operate chemically? Well, this is a cell. It's utterly amazing. A cell is a machine. It is a factory. How do you get materials in a factory from point A to point B? You have these overhead automatic scaffolds that pick stuff up and deliver it. This is what a cell is. A cell is a factory. We understand certain things about the cell, other things we don't. But, you know, this has, if it has to transport material from one end of the cell to the other, you know how it does it? It, has, it, it will build a microtubule. It'll construct the microtubule and then transfer the material along the tubule. And then it deconstructs the tubule. You say, well, why doesn't it just leave it there? Because then the cell would become too rigid. You get too many. It just deconstructs it and rebuilds it where it needs to transfer. It's amazing. How does it do this? It's amazing. So, I don't understand the vast chemical mechanisms in the cell, but it clearly operates. So, it's not improper to ask the question, by what chemical mechanism does it function? The very question spawns further investigation. So, generally, scientists are invited to ask questions. So, the question often asked of me by students is, what do you think about evolution? Well, on my website, my website is jmtour.com. And then if you go to the corner, there's a personal topics tab. And one of, the, one of the bullets there is evolution creation. So I've written about this thing. So before we talk about evolution, let's first talk about the origin of life. Because you have to have life before you can have evolution. Or how did life arise in the first place? You want to say, well, aliens brought it here. That's fine. I'm okay with that. But let's say origin of first life. Where did the alien life come from? Let's say, what is the origin of first life? And on Earth, life has to have four compounds. It has to have carbohydrates, nucleic acids, lipids, and proteins. 
those four compounds. That's what life is made out of today. That's what you and me are made out of. We're not made out of silicon. We're not made out of, out of tungsten. We're made out of these molecules, carbohydrates, nucleic acids, lipids, and proteins. So I just wrote this article this year on abiogenesis or prebiotic chemistry. And, and, uh, and yeah, that's supposed to be me. I mean, they, you write these articles for them, and then they, they, I don't know where they get these artists, but they do this to everyone. And, and uh, you know, I saw it. I was like, whoa. And then my, my kids saw it. They thought, they're, they're, <laughs> one of my kids, you see, there they go again, attacking the Jews. I said, no, they do this. They do this to everyone. Don't worry, just, just calm down. They do this to, to, to everyone who writes a journal, an article for them. But I just dissected Origin of Life. So I, I asked one of my very famous colleagues, National Academy member, I said, what's the origin of carbohydrates? He said, oh, it comes from formaldehyde in the foremost reaction. I said, okay, and, and he said, I'll send you an article. So I read the article by a guy named Eschen Moser, a great chemist. I've known, him, known of his work for many years. He's in his 90s now. And I just went to the synthetic protocols and I dissected it. So, so if you look at nature's molecules, so, so nature uses ribose. This is ribose, these, these five carbon sugars. Why do, this, why do we want to focus in on ribose? Because the backbone of DNA is a carbohydrate. So you have the carbohydrate strand and then the nucleic acids are hanging off. So before you can have DNA, you've got to have the, the sugars and the carbohydrates. And you've got to have the five carbon carbohydrate. So in trying to make this in a prebiotic world, you, you, all you can do is mix certain things, but, but uh, uh, you can't do real sophisticated chemistry because you're only supposed to use the molecules that nature had at the time. Things like formaldehyde, things like ammonia. And, and uh, so he had to make these pentose sugars, but the pentose sugars have three stereogenic centers, which means that you're going to end up with, with a total of eight possible, uh, eight possible isomers. You get these, these four pairs of enantiomers, and then between the pairs of enantiomers, they're diastereomers. So you, you don't just get one, you get all of them. So what happens is you need these five carbon sugars, or you need to have the D-ribose in particular. If it's for DNA, you have to now pull off one of the hydroxyl groups to be deoxyribose, unless you want to start with RNA, which is fine, and then you'd have ribose, but then it's a lot less stable. But the prebiotic system never knows that. So when we want to make something in the lab, we, we, we decide the target we want to make, and then we go ahead and make it. The prebiotic system doesn't know what it's going to make. doesn't know. I think I'll build life today. No, it doesn't know that. There's no brain there in a prebiotic system. So what is the chemistry going toward? It has no target. That's a big problem. Try to make something without going toward it. You don't know what to go toward. It had to do this with all those classes of molecules. It never knew what to go toward. It never knew what to select because it didn't have a selector. It's not biology. Biology has selectors. Living systems have selectors. If it's the right thing, it notices it by this enzyme. If it's the wrong thing, it notices it and it sends another enzyme to chew it up. But this is before there's any enzymes because it's prebiotic. It's prebiology. It's pre-life. Before you can have life, you've got to have the molecules. So here's... Here's, that was the first thing. This is, the, the, this is a number of criteria that nature has to, has to deal with. If, you, if you've just, you just view this totally as a materialistic world, nature has chosen a hard route. It's chosen most of its molecules are, are, can be enantiomeric, and it's chosen them as homochiral. 
So the system has multiple stereogenic centers and it's chosen homochiral. These are hard compounds to work with. Just trust me, it's very hard to do homochiral synthesis on something with multiple stereogenic centers. You have solubility problems. Try to do organic chemistry in water. That's what a, a, a natural system has to do. And you have to design the system so it splays out the hydrophilic portions and puts the hydrophobic portions in t on the interior. As organic chemists, we just use organic solvents. Nature's got to use just water. When building a molecular nanosystem, like trying to build a, a, a functioning cell, you have to do constant redesigns because it doesn't work. So you go back to the beginning. Redesign often makes you go back to step one in the synthesis. I know this because we build nanomachines. Very few people build molecules all the way up to a nanomachine. Very few people. There's only a handful of us in the world which will start from molecules and go right up to a functioning machine. So it bothers people when I say, I probably know more about this than most people, but let me explain to you why. There's so few people that do it. Even most organic chemists don't try to build a functioning machine from the system. They make a molecule. Hey, look at what I made. But they don't try to put them together to build a functioning system. That's what we do with these, these, these molecular cars and these, 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 these uh, submarines. The cars, by the way, have four independently rotating wheels, they have molecular motors, they have axles, they have loading bays, all of these things. But if you want to change something, you've got to go back to step one. How, does, how did this happen in a prebiotic world when there's no mind there? It doesn't know how to stop. So say it gets to a carbohydrate. How does it know to stop the synthesis? doesn't know that oh, there's the target I want. No. You just ruined what you just took 400 million years to make. It doesn't know to stop. Prebiotic system doesn't have just-in-time delivery. I order chemicals, they're at my door in 18 hours. And I keep the intermediate safe and stored in the freezer for the next step. What does nature do? Here in this cave, something formed. The thing it needs to react with is in a cave 80 kilometers away or on another planet. How did it get there? How did it get there? It has to be in a concentration where things can react. If it's just one molecule in a puddle, there's not a concentration gradient where things can react because the, the two molecules never find each other. Just It's easy statistics to figure out. You have to have a certain concentration before things can react. People will often say to me, oh, if you wait long enough, it'll form. No, time is your enemy in organic chemistry. Time is your enemy. You make something, you right away... Store it in a precious place because if air hits it or ammonia hits it, it falls apart. They're kinetic products. Very often they're the kinetic product, meaning that they form first, but they're not the most stable. The most stable is junk. Reagent addition order is critical. You have to add A and then B and then C. You can't just throw it all together. It doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way. Try cooking you know, an elaborate French dinner. I brought all this stuff, I just add it all together. And <laughs> Chemistry is the same way, you can't do that. How does nature know what to add? How does it add one and then the other and then the other? And when these guys do their prebiotic chemistry, say, look what we got. Yeah, because you added A and then B and then C and you bought A and you bought B and you bought C. The parameters of temperature, pressure, solvent, light or no light, pH, oxygen, no oxygen, moisture, no moisture, has to be carefully controlled to build complex molecular structures. The characterization at each step is essential, 
but hard in a prebiotic system. How do you characterize it? Biology characterizes everything. Everything that's made, enzymes check it. And if it's not right, another enzyme comes and rips out that, that wrong base and fixes it in the DNA. But this is a prebiotic world. You don't have any of this. How do you bring up more starting material from the rear? Any, from the rear, anytime you want to make a complex system, you, you, you go along and then you run out of starting material because you were trying many things and then you go back and you make some more and then you go back and you... How does nature go back? It's, it, it, it just spent a billion years building something and now, uh-oh, I ran out of starting material. Well, just go back and make some more. Uh, I would, but I never kept a laboratory notebook. I forgot what I had done a billion years ago. You, you see the problem. How many, how many organic chemists are here? Okay, do you know what I'm talking about? Isn't this true? It just doesn't work. None of this works. And this is what they publish paper on after paper, and it gets into nature and the science. I'm like, you're crazy. <laughs> and there's no accounting here. There's no accounting. So one guy makes ribose, in a 0.1% yield with all the other carbohydrates in there and they identify it by mass spec. And then the next researcher starts with ribose. Say, okay, ribose has been made, so we'll start with that. Now, no, no, start with the junk that he made. You don't buy ribose with all the chiral centers in place that came from the natural source. None of it works. So, critical for life is the origin of information. So this is just making the basic molecules. Now you got the whole information. It's not just the, the nucleic acids, it's the order in which they're arranged. The information is primary, the matter is secondary. Information is primary. You can write information on a piece of paper, then transfer it to your computer, put it up in the cloud, and now it's in some server form. The, 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 the matter can change. The information is primary. This is why we believe that in Christ, when we die, we live forever with Him because the information is stored in the cloud. <laughs> it is. It is retained in the cloud. We are very much with Him. The body can be cremated. The body decomposes. That's just the matter upon which it was stored for that time. And in fact, even the... The information that's in my brain is changing all the time, the matter. Your body is replaced every seven years. Every molecule of your body replaces out. So all the molecules are replaced out all the time, constantly replaced. So your matter is changing all the time, but the information is the primary part. You see what I mean? The information, the code. So even if you had all of these molecules, you can't do anything. Because... You don't have the information. So the origin of life... So say we assemble a dream team. I'll give the dream team can't even make the first, first living cell if given all the chemicals uh, for the information code. So in other words, the mystery of the origin of life does not permit the opening of the door on a biological evolution. It's difficult to discuss biology without life. You can't start life. So say I assemble the dream team. Say we're not in caves anymore. You're in your best labs in the world, and I get the top 100 synthetic chemists, the top 100 biochemists, the top 100 evolutionary biologists, and the top 100 whatever else you want. And I give them limitless funds, and I give them all the carbohydrates, lipids, nucleic acids, and proteins that they want. And I'll even give it to them in the assembled order. All the DNA, all the RNA, I'll give you the information. You tell me the code you want. 
I'll give it all to you. Now you take those and just make me one cell. The simplest of living organisms, a cell. Make it for me. They'll be like, you're crazy. You can't, we can't assemble one of those. They can't. They can't. You say, well, oh, what about artificial cell? Artificial cell is you take a piece from one cell and you put it in another cell. You look what I made. It's like if I take the engine. When I, I, I used to work on cars a lot as a kid. You take the engine out of one car, you put it in another car. Say, hey, I made that car. You take the engine out of one car, you put That's what they call, you know, artificial cell. You try to make a cell ab initio. I'll give you all the chemicals. You can't even build it. But in some cave somewhere, it happened. Clueless. If you just Google my name, James Tour, Origin of Life, on YouTube, or just go to, you, just YouTube, just go to YouTube and, 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 and put James Tour, Origin of Life. I gave a talk at the University of Waterloo for an hour and 15 minutes. It's straight, boom, boom, just, just, just fire Upon, upon this group just trying to explain the problems with origin of life and none of my colleagues will say a word. They all act as if they've never seen it. I sent them the URL. I say what? They, they don't even look me in the face because they don't want to have to address this because they know it's a bunch of nonsense. It's nonsense what they're publishing. All right. Now, the frustration of the evolutionist toward me. So now, all right, I'll give you life. What about evolution? Well, I signed a statement in 2001 that says we are skeptical of the claims for the ability of random mutation and natural selection to account for the complexity of life. Careful examination of the evidence for Darwinian evolution should be encouraged. That was sent to me in an email. Do you know how fast you go through emails? Boom, boom, boom. Yes, yes, sure, sure. Can you agree with this? Yes. All of a sudden, I didn't know that this was going to become the moral touchstone in court cases. I mean, but it's okay, because I do agree with it. But I didn't realize what it was going to do to my career. I mean, this statement has become known as a scientific descent from, Dar uh, the, a scientific descent from Darwinian statement. It has this, this amazing name now. My signing this statement has led to problems in my career. I never knew it. But, but it's okay, because I still do agree with it. Okay, so in 2016, just this year, so this is all new to me, I set out on a personal mission to engage biologists, philosophers of science, mathematicians, and geneticists in order to better understand evolution. I wanted to understand what is it that you really believe. And so I have a little more access to them than a typical undergraduate student does. So I can, I can call somebody on the phone and say, look, you're a top geneticist. This is Jim Tour." I'd like to come and visit you for a day or two. Explain to me genetics and how you get this. And they opened the door to me. Some of them were nice. Some of them weren't. Some of them just berated me and just called me names. And some of them sat there very patiently and explained these things to me. So, Darwinian theory has already been debunked by the biologists. So how's that? Well, many biologists suggest that random mutation and natural selection have long been recognized by many evolutionists themselves to be insufficient to account for the complexity of life. Neutral drift is quantitatively more important than natural selection in understanding genetic differences between organisms. Furthermore, the mechanisms of evolution and their relative importance are continuously subject 
to careful scientific examination and revision. So careful examination of the evidence has not been avoided. So what, he, what they say to me is, you signed this statement, but we've already known random mutation and natural selection are insufficient, and we under, we, we're always carefully examining. I'm like, well, guys, why don't you sign the statement with me then? And because you, you agree with me. Anyway, they didn't know what I was talking about. Evolution is both, this is, this is a quote from, from top geneticists. Evolution is both about the mechanism by which change occurs over time and the theory of universal common descent. All right, so I sat for two days and just learned about common descent. It is an amazing theory. And I can understand why those fluent in the field of genetics would be convinced by universal common descent. Common descent does not mean that we evolved from monkeys from chimpanzees. What it means is that humans and chimpanzees both come from a common ancestor. That's what common descent means. It is a remarkably well-developed theory with plenty of evidence supporting its, cases, its case, plenty of mathematical evidence. We have to, as believers, do the scientific justice and be scientifically credible enough to say, I am looking at your theory and I understand why you wholeheartedly embrace that theory. It is just, just point upon point upon point, pointing toward universal common descent. Let's look further. So humans have 20,000 protein-coding genes, which is only about 1.5% of the DNA. So only about 1.5% of our DNA is the DNA that really codes for the construction of our body. And it's within that 1.5% that common descent studies are primarily, though not exclusively, but primarily focused. Then there was a large-scale project instituted in 2003, not by Christians. This is by the U.S. National Human Genome Research Institute called the Encyclopedia of DNA Elements, or ENCODE. You can just Google ENCODE. It'll come up. It seeks to determine the role of the remaining 98.5% of the DNA, of the genome that was formerly poorly called junk DNA, but now it's better called intergenic regions. So 98.5% of the DNA that's within us is not what codes for most of us. It's only 1.5% that does the coding, and they thought this other 98.5% was just junk. Now they're learning it's not quite junk. There's ENCODE evidence that part or even much of the intergenic regions have regulatory elements that can affect gene transcription. That means that that's the code that builds the RNA that then builds the enzymes that constructs us. So the uncommonness is noted in the intergenic regions, not the common 1.5% protein coding regions. If you look at the 1.5%, it absolutely looks like we descended, we, we have a common, that humans and, and other hominids come from a common descendant. When you look at the 98.5%, there's other regions there that are unique that speak of uncommonness. Then there's work on something called orphan genes, which casts new light on the uniqueness of some genetic information. Orphan genes are considered unique to a narrow taxon or generally a species. Therefore, orphan genes are markers of uncommonness. So in other words, you can find segments of genes where there is nothing like it that maps back to a chimpanzee. Those are called orphan genes. There are over 200 that have been recognized in human beings that are not in other hominids. That 200, are, again, are markers of uncommonness, 
When you look at the 1.5% of the vast majority of the, of the protein coding genes that mark us, it really looks like common descent. But the jury is still out on the other 98.5%. The uncommon human being. Humans alone have the capacity for art, music, advanced communication, advanced mathematics, and religious practice which constitute the broader organization of symbolism. I am here speaking you, to you today in symbolism. I'm describing DNA. I don't have to put DNA in front of you. I just I describe it, and in your mind's eye, you, you get it. This is symbolism. This is how humans interact in symbolism all the time. Other creatures don't do this. Tell, try to explain to a dog, go outside, go 300 feet, and then go up a ladder, go two inches to the right, to the left, open up a secret gate, and then and the, you can explain that to a human every time they'll get that. Advanced communication. Therefore, if one is intent upon common descent model, there was a massive and presently unexplainable infusion, which may have been intrinsic or extrinsic, along the very short proposed pathway of descendancy between uh, Australopithecines and, human, and modern humans. That's the thing right next to us. Right next to us. Something happened. If you look at our brains and other hominids, they are anatomically indistinguishable from our brain. You look at them chemically. They're chemically indistinguishable from our brain. We don't know what it is that makes us so much different than other hominids. Our brains are nearly indistinguishable. And the chemical mechanism, the chemical basis of the evolutionary mechanism for such, a such changes is both unknown and presently immeasurable. We don't even know how, to, how it's different. It's clearly different. Humans deal in symbolism. If the infusion were extrinsic, in other words, if something put that in there, then the materialistic evolutionist and the design proponent share common ground. If it somehow came extrinsically. Body plans. A body plan is the ground or plan on the assemblage of morphological features shared among common members of a phylum level group. The term is usually applied to animals and it's the blueprint encompassing aspects such as symmetry, segmentation, limb, de de uh, uh, limb deposition. Body plans. There is no mechanism for how Different species got their body plans. No mechanism. By that I mean, remember what I told you, what, what the evolutionists themselves said. Biology, but the evolution consists of two things. Mechanisms and universal common descent. There is nobody can fathom the mechanisms for the change of a body plan in going from one species to another. Nobody has a mechanism. Mechanism means the process by which that would occur. You measure... You measure things that tell you mechanisms. Any massive functional change of a body part would require multiple concerted lines of variation. Sure, one can suggest multiple small changes ad infinitum, but a concerted requirement of multiple changes all happening in the same place at the same time in evolutionary history is impossible to chemically fathom. One day the requisite chemical basis might become apparent so that the question can be answered. But present-day biology is far from providing even a chemical proposal for the functional change, let alone a data-substantiated chemical mechanism. So I, asked, I would ask them, tell me the chemical mechanism. You know, 
Biology is not like organic chemistry where you can push every electron. Okay, fine. Tell me just in your mind how something like this could proceed. Nothing. They don't even have a proposal for the change. So, therefore, I don't understand the mechanisms needed to change body plans or the mechanisms along the descent pathway from Australia, uh, Australopithecine brain to a modern human brain if we were indeed commonly descended as predicted by the theory of universal common descent. I don't understand it. And nobody else understands the mechanisms either. Nobody. Nobody. They don't understand. And what the difference is, when I speak to them, I ask them, show me the mechanism. And they can't whittle out. They're stuck. When you ask them, they will say, this is clearly understood. I will send you some papers. This is what they will say to you. Because they used to say this to me. And I say, no, no. I want you to explain it to me. Because I've gotten their papers and it's a bunch of fish heads. And there's nothing. There's no mechanism. Nobody understands this. Nobody understands. My problem, I'm saying it publicly. That's my problem. Because I'm saying it publicly. That I just don't understand. I will agree that universal common descent is an amazing theory. Amazing with a lot of backing behind it. But there are regions of uncommonness that we're seeing. And the mechanisms were clueless. And remember, evolution is about the mechanism of change and universal common descent. Recall, quoting the biologist, evolution is both about the mechanism by which change occurs over time and the theory of universal common descent, but the mechanisms are unknown and the theory of universal common descent, though robust, is being confronted by evidence that can be interpreted as, as uncommonness. So further studies warranted. So we just do further studies. That's all I'm saying. Further studies are warranted. So what's the outcome of my skepticism? Was I denied tenure? No. But I, was, I got tenure 25 years ago when this wasn't an issue. None of this stuff was an issue. Loss of funding, not that I can positively identify. Harassment, not to any significant degree. Ridicule, on rare occasions, but, it's often, but, but not often directly at me. They'll say things behind my back. Confrontations, yes, but these are often diffused with just a few questions. I just ask them, okay, could you show me the mechanism? I'll give you, I'll give you a system that clearly evolves, and that's the immune system. The immune system dissolves. It evolves. It evolves and it changes and this is how we survive. This is a microevolutionary changes. It changes, it changes. You ask them for the mechanism behind this change that we know occurs. It's right in front of us. There's no mechanism. I got one guy so upset with me, finally he sent me 70 papers. 70! Said you read them. I mean, when somebody sends you 70 papers, it's just to try to just try to bury you. But I, I set aside a weekend and I, I read his papers. <laughs> and I wrote back to him. I said, I didn't see any molecules in there. Where is the mechanism? You can write box going to the next box. Can, that's not science. That's box. Going to box. Going to box. Where's the mechanism? Show me how it occurs. Even on something we know evolves, they don't have a mechanism. And so I just say, show me the mechanism. We move away. Have I not been hired for, for a position? I suspect so. Have I been excluded from 
professional societies, yes. That I know has happened. Uh, and I know that because they told me, you're not getting in here because of your stance on this. So, here's the hope that I see. Science is self-correcting. If evolutionary theory is correct, the mechanistic description will become evident and the genetic studies will become more clear. In my opinion, there are many remaining questions, so further investigation is warranted. I suppose more than 99% of scientists never think about confronting anyone on these issues. They're too busy with other things. You know, most scientists are not against Christians. Or they don't even think it's a non-issue to them. I mean, you know, how, you know how many emails people get? You're busy. It's busy. People never think about this. The younger generation has a deeper sense of social fairness and justice, and they're less impressed with conformal academic fluff. That's the hope that I see. That as young people start getting moving up into positions of influence, that they're going to say, hey, this is not right to exclude people based on their understanding of this, and they're not embracing something that you yourself can't explain. This is Richard Smalley. He won the 1996 Nobel Prize. My primary mission to which I am called is to reflect the love of Jesus Christ. Rick Smalley, two years before his death, came to, came to know the Lord. We were colleagues there at Rice. And uh, he used to ridicule Christians a lot. But then his life and his heart were softened by the infilling of the Lord Jesus Christ. What we have, the message that we have, is better than anything. The message of the resurrection the message of the resurrection is the only thing that changes a life. Socialism doesn't do it. Communism doesn't do it. You want to change a heart, you get it filled with Jesus Christ and the heart changes. That's what I saw with Rick Smalley. His heart changed. Max Planck said, a new scientific truth does not triumph by convincing its opponents and making them see the light but rather because its opponents eventually die. <laughs> I don't think that most of the opponents here are going to say, yeah, you know, Tour, you're right. You really nailed us on this origin of life thing. It was all a bunch of garbage anyway. I don't think that's going to happen. I think they're just going to die. <laughs> that's what I think. I, I think that, that the people that are embracing this are eventually going to die and other people are going to come up and say, Hey, I don't understand that either. I don't understand it. So does science make faith obsolete? Not for me. And I'll end there. Thank you.
though, is that this isn't a, a class setting. Uh, when, when I'm teaching, I say, you know, there's no such thing as a dumb question. You know, just, just ask it because, you know, because they're easier to answer, really. <laughs> Well, in, in, I teach organic chemistry, so we, we, don't, we don't talk about evolution very much within the field of organic chemistry. And so I don't, I don't speak about it much in class. Uh, if anybody asks me, though, then I can, I can tell them the same things that I've told you. So I, I will often sit with my graduate students and tell them the same things that I've told you about, about common descent and the things that I was learning as I went through this year and met with different, different uh, scientists around the country. I'd come back and tell them all the things that I learned, and uh, and, and then and then you know bounce things off of them. And they and I, I have believers in my group too that don't don't agree with me. I have believers in my group that that, that feel that yeah everything is universal common descent, and and uh, we'll have short discussions. But but I, I don't get hot about it because um, none of this is 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 critical to my salvation. My salvation is based on on. Uh, Faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and His resurrection from the dead. That's what our faith is based on. That's the critical part. So these, these are much lesser issues. Um, it is much easier for me to talk with an organic chemist about origin of life and they will quickly agree with me that it's an utter mystery. Even biologists will agree with me that it's a mystery. Evolution is so ingrained in our system, I don't even try to bring it up. I don't even try to... I, I mean, I have so many other things to talk about with people. I don't bring it up. But if the conversation should arise, you know, I'll, I'll start saying what I need to say. But I, it, to, to me, it's not something that I bring up. It, it, it doesn't, doesn't easily draw people closer to Jesus normally. No, they, they don't. The, the ones writing the articles never say that. Oh, okay. So, yeah. so, but the question is basically, uh, what, what would be the next step? We're dialoguing with these folks. 
um, and they maybe come to this point where you can see that there's a realization that they understand, okay, maybe yeah. I'm not quite there, but then they're, they're denying it anyway. Um, you, you, you know, so, so, so I wrote this article on, on this prebiotic chemistry and I called out two people in particular. You know, I, I, I mean, it, it was an 80-page manuscript. I mean, it's a long article. Um, and I could only cover two people's work. But then since then, a few other articles have appeared and I've, addressed, I've written a couple-page critique on all of those. It's a very simple to, to shred it. It's very simple. You just look at the experimental and you say, guys, you know this isn't right. But... But I, I didn't talk with them. I just put it up on my website and and and, uh, um, and and write it. And I think that as we start, as people start seeing these things, they're going to start saying, "Yeah, that there is no there there." I mean, it's, there's there's a lot of unknowns on this that could not have happened in a prebiotic system. Um, and 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 so much people are trying to figure out all this could happen in a godless world. They're trying to figure out a way to get this, and, and it's, it's maybe they'll find it someday, but it's far from today. We're nowhere close. We don't even have a proposal, let alone an actual bona fide mechanism. Um, and 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 I'm not even doing it to trouble anybody. It's just that I, I, I'll tell you why I'm doing it. I mean, so these societies came at me and they said, because I signed that statement, I can't get in the society. And finally, I told them, look, guys, well then I'm coming out of the closet. I'm going to start, you know, really talking about this stuff now. And, and uh, I, w I was uh, much nicer to them. I just, I lived my life, they lived their life, and I just happened to sign a statement, yes, to email. And they're doing this to me. They say, okay, you know, you, you know then the gloves are coming off. Where are you? Um, okay, okay. You, know, you talked a lot about the importance of identifying mechanisms, and I was wondering if you could maybe be a little more specific about what a successful identification of a mechanism would look like. Is it mean we can actually replicate it in a lab and recreate it using our understanding of it, or is it some kind of theoretical explanation that meets some kind of standard of plausibility? Yeah, a absolutely. That, that's a very good question. So, so what, is, what constitutes a mechanism? So, fundamentally, you can never prove a mechanism. You can only disprove other mechanisms and really point in the right direction. You isolate certain intermediates that, that show it. So, you want a mechanism for... You eat, eat a steak tonight. Mechanism for degradation of, of, uh, of protein. That you can actually see, you can actually look at, at, at enzymatic sites and you can see how molecules fit in enzymatic sites. That's extremely detailed. I'm not asking for that level of detail. I'm just asking, you want to reconstruct a body plan. You want a dog to go into a horse or whatever it's going to be where you're going to have a major reconstruction of, of limbs. How does that occur? So now you have to have, you have, to have codes changing that can predict what future massive changes are going to occur. I would even like to see proposals where it would start saying, okay, what's known? 
enzymes can begin to pull out these sorts of structures and change these sorts of structures so that we can get these modifications. But remember, it, it has to know something about what it's going toward. And it's going to have to do this in a concerted fashion. So what you come up with, you have to have several lines of these occurring. It's not just one little thing, change, change, change. You have to have several things changing with it. If you want to have one organ change into another organ. So the, the, the immune system evolves. That we know. Immune system undergoes these evolutionary changes. But it never becomes a digestive system. It remains an immune system. So what you need to show is you need to see, show one system becoming another system. You can show that in a lab. And even if you show it in a lab, even if you don't have the mechanism, you've now demonstrated that. That, I mean, that, that's really great. I mean, that, that provides a lot. Okay, you've demonstrated some dramatic change like this. Or what you can do is you can propose, okay, these sorts of changes might be able to occur, and this is not way out of line with things that we've seen. It's got to be somehow related to things that we've seen, things that we know can happen. And when you have these concerted lines, you have to somehow suggest how these concerted lines would, would change all in the same place, all in the same time. So it, it's not easy to have a mechanism. It's not easy. So it's much easier for me to say, what's the mechanism, than for them to produce the mechanism. I concede that. But if it's about mechanisms, you're going to have to show me a mechanism. But even a, a, a logical proposal is a first step. And that's a first step that's not as good as a mechanism, but a logical proposal is a good first step. There's, there's some folks up here that want a microphone. Okay. So I've been on ICR that the mathematical probability of the evolution of the first cell is 10 to 4 million 200 power. I was going to ask, how can I use that to draw somebody into a beneficial conversation instead of pushing it away and frightening them off? Yeah, so the, when you look at this mathematically, I mean, we just shouldn't be here. I mean, it's... It, it, and, 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 and most... You know, even if you look, look at it mathematically for us functioning as human beings. It, it, it's just amazing. So, so many biologists will say that, that mathematicians just really miss it. They just miss it because they're using a pure math argument, but they don't understand the power of biology, where biology is a malleable system, and it, and it heals things, and it flexes, and, and it is. It is an amazing system. Um, uh, I, don't, I don't know that those arguments... You know, you, you, so, so you specifically asked, how can you, you use that with people without pushing them away? Um, you, you know, some, some people tell me that it's those arguments that really drew them closer to the Lord. And so some people are good at using those types of arguments. And I, I think if you befriend them and you, and you discuss things like this, that, that if, if, you say, if you say it's, it, 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 it's, it's one over ten to the two hundredth, you know, most people don't even know what that means. All right? Most people don't know the difference between a million and a billion. The way I describe the difference between a million and a billion with people is a million seconds, a million seconds is 11 days. A billion seconds is 32 years. It's a difference between a million and a billion, and that's just three orders of magnitude. Avogadro's number of 6 times 10 to the 23rd, 
That's the number of water molecules you swallow in one swallow of water. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> that's a big number. Okay, if you had 6 times 10 to the 23rd sheets of paper, that stack of paper reaches from the Earth to the Sun 400 million times. Whoa. That's a big number. So you, you, you have to always put things in the context where people can understand. Most people don't understand what 10 to the 200th power means. They think that that's 200. They don't know what it means. I'm telling you, they just don't know what it means. And then when you go, it's one over that. 10 to the minus, 10 to the minus 200. They don't know what that means. So you have to first start with a person who understands these sorts of powers, these sorts of numbers and what they mean before you're going to shake them with it. And then, and then you can have a conversation. Personally, I don't, I don't know how to go there. I just, I just, do you believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ? Okay, but well, that's the question I ask them. I sit with my colleague, and the first thing, as soon as we sit down, do you believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ? And based on their answer to that, then I know how to engage them. And, and so, there are different ways of engaging people, and we, we have different methods. But you're going to have to think about who you engage with, with number arguments like, like that. It's going to have to be somebody who understands powers of numbers. Okay. You mentioned that the uh, observed difference between the skeletonic uh, brain and our brain is not in the biology. But do they even have a mechanism how thoughts went? Is, 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 have you ever talked to anybody with a mechanism for thoughts at all? Yeah. I mean, even the skeletonic thought? Yeah. So, so we, we know how memory works. We know how memory is encoded electronically in small proteins, hardwired into connect. That progression to get things into, into long-term storage. Thoughts are something different. So to a materialist, there's no difference between my brain and my mind. Right? To a materialist. Um, but what we're finding now is there may well be a, a big difference between the thoughts, my, 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 my mind, and, and the actual brain material that's there. So exactly the questioning your, your question you're answering, and I'm not an expert in brain research, but at one point we were building a molecular computer. And, and this is how I got my appointment in the computer science department. All my colleagues said it would be impossible to program this thing. And, and uh, because it was, one had to solve a a, a series of nonlinear differential equations. I didn't know how to solve that. So I hired two students from applied math and I didn't tell them that my colleagues said it couldn't be solved. And they solved it. And so I got my appointment in computer science because my colleagues thought I solved it. It was really my, my students have solved it. But we thought a lot about how to program a molecular computer where you have a disordered array you don't know the order of what's in there. And you have to be able to give voltage pulses from the exterior and, and be able to program something useful. So I started reading papers about brain chemistry. What is known about brain chemistry? And I was, I was utterly saddened. There was, there was very little chemical understanding of what's happening in the brain. So when I say we can't tell the difference between other hominid brains chemically and our own brains, anatomically or chemically, 
um, uh, that's true, but it also says that, that uh, um, our tools are just sticks and rocks at this point. We don't understand brain chemistry very well. So I don't have a good answer for you because I'm not an expert, but I've, I've told you all that I know. I want to thank you for the talk. And um, I, came, I came tonight to ask you for your guidance as uh, church leaders and uh, parents. How can we prepare kids that are teenagers going to high school, prepare them to be able to go to college and survive in academia when it's so anti-Christian? Yeah. So, you, you know, all, all of my... All of my kids, all of my children went to secular universities. All of my, well, three of my four children graduated from Christian high school. One of them graduated from, did, did Christian school for many years, but did her last three years in a, in a secular high school. And then, and then they all went to, to a secular university. One of the reasons for that is, is that at Rice University, my children can go tuition free. So, you know, it's a, it's a, there was a huge money issue there. But, but um, it is a concern. It is a concern. And, and so I, I've written on my website under the Evolution Creation page what I think that, that I don't think that we need to introduce an intelligent designer into the school system. I think that what we, what we can agree upon is to show the areas, to teach, to, to teach what's behind universal common descent and then show the areas of uncommonness, project ENCODE, orphan genes, all these are hard science uh, uh, areas of, uh, of research. Then also talk about the mechanistic problem and the real mysteries behind origin of life. So as soon as you start telling students that here is one thought and then here is the other side, I think that's a very good way to prepare them and, and uh, to prepare them for that. What I'm concerned about a lot in the secular universities, and I see it happen, is that, is that you can get a dulling in the spirit of many young people because they quickly come in and the first thing, for example, at, at many universities is they go through this one week of, uh, uh, you know, how, how do I say it without getting in trouble? But any, anyway, you, you, you go through the, the, this, this sensitivity training. And it's taught by people with a certain worldview. And that right from, as they come in the door, they get that. And there's not too many Christian professors that they can look to that have a different worldview. That's the concern I have for secular universities. But we absolutely have to have believers in the secular universities to be able to engage in the marketplace. And, and you will find that if, if you want to have professors at top universities, they're going to have to come out of secular universities. The students are going to have to come out of secular universities. So, so um, uh, you, you, you have to be able to do it. Now, there's many students that come into a much deeper faith in the university. I mean, I came into the university as an agnostic and I came out, you know, believing in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yes, you too. I mean, so this happens. Um, uh, I don't have a good answer for you. You see, I'm stumbling here. I don't have a good answer on how to, how to so protect them because I, I saw it with my own children. Now, all my children have maintained their faith. Now, it's not the faith that I want. I mean, they, they express it in different ways. And, and, uh, and, and politically, you know, I was, I was just telling John, I mean, in the last... In the, in the last uh, uh, um, 
in the, le- in the last election for, for the nominations. We're a family of six. All six of us voted for different people. <laughs> you know, so, so, I mean, there's a diversity of thought there, and I, I'm kind of proud of that. But my wife's was actually the best. She voted for Marco Rubio. And her rationale is it reminds her of one of my sons. So she said, I'm going to vote for the guy who looks like my son. <laughs> anyway, so I thought that was as good a reason as any, I guess. But, but um, uh, you, you know, I, I want to teach my kids how to love the Lord. I want to teach them to love the Lord. They know what I think. They know where I stand. And, and I, sometimes kids, would, my, my children would come home and, and, and they would ask me. And they knew where I stood. I mean, I, they'd heard it so many times from me. And now they're hearing this in, 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 uh, in the university. They're hearing things that are quite different. But at some point, I've got to leave them in the hands of God. I mean, I, I don't want to so try to control them that you, you're going to be just like me. Uh, I've got to leave them in the hands of God. And in many ways, they've far excelled me in mercy and doing good works and doing many great things for the Lord. So, so at, at some point, I, I turn them over to the Lord and say, you know, you're 18, you're 19. I mean, countries put guns in your hands and go, send you out in the army. I, I, I can release you. And, and this is what I did for all the years that my children were growing, growing up. In my own morning devotions, I would have a picture of my kids on the wall. And I would always pray. So it said, Lord, don't ever let me stand in the way of something that you want to do. Because I had seen the biggest barrier to Christian missions was Christian parents didn't want their kids to go off on the mission field. And I said, Lord, you send them any place you want to send them and I won't stand in the way. Lord, you use them. And so that's still what I do. a bunch of nonsense. You, 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 take, you, take a, uh, you, you take some ammonia and some formaldehyde and you put an arc across it and you generate a lot of heat and you, you get this dual heating and, and, uh, uh, and you come out with a few amino acids. A few amino acids. I mean, this is what chemistry does. You put the right chemicals together in a very high concentration and you put an arc across it, you're going to get small molecules. They were all racemic. They, the amino acids don't hook up without enzymes. And so you got a bunch of amino acids. You don't have any proteins. And, and uh, uh, they were in concentrations that if you ever had that concentration in the, in the earth, this world would be pure amino acids. I mean, nothing was right about it. But the world latched on. I didn't even address that in my article because it's like talking about Santa Claus. It's not even worth addressing. I, I, I at least addressed the things that were worth addressing. So you were talking about leaving your children in the hands of God. Uh, uh, where are you? How okay. Are you? Okay. <laughs> so this question was asked of me yesterday, and I was wondering if you had a response. Um, do you think science encourages the belief in the Christian 
screenshot specifically or just in an intelligent community? Do I, you know, you, you need to read my website. I, 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 don't even, I don't even put myself forward as an advocate of intelligent design. Not that I don't believe, that, not, 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 not that I'm opposed to it. And my rationale for that is that the tools of chemistry do not permit me to say that it, is, it has been intelligent, intelligently designed. My tools of chemistry don't. And I hold my colleagues to the same standards. I say, you've got to use the tools of chemistry to show me this stuff. I can't, there is, the canonical tools themselves were never made to give that assessment. Now, that may be something that you come out with at the end of the day, but the tools themselves don't say, you know, you put it in this instrument, intelligent design. I don't have any chemical tool that, I have a lot of tools that tell me a lot about chemical reactions. None tell me about intelligent design. So, so uh, um, but intelligent design as I know it, doesn't speak of a Christian God. As, as I understand intelligent design, it just says that there was some intelligent being behind it. It doesn't say that that, that, that that intelligent designer had to be benevolent, for example. But the beautiful thing to me about the Christian God, and Christianity is, 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 is the best analogy that, that I've, I've understood. Now, I, I've been married for almost 35 years. And, and, um, and when, I, when, I met, when I met my wife, when, we, when I first met her before she was my wife, I gave her a cookbook. And I said, you do everything in this book exactly as it says, and you serve me exactly as it says in this book, and maybe after 35 years, I'll consider welcoming you into a wedding relationship. Now, now we, we would never insult anybody with that sort of action. But the beautiful thing about Christianity, it's so different. I don't work my way into heaven. He accepted me on day one exactly where I was. And in no other religion do you get this. In everything else, you somehow do good enough to have your good works, outweigh your bad works, and maybe he'll somehow accept you. But the Christian God is very different. He accepts me for who I am. But as far as intelligent design, I don't think that to be an intelligent design proponent, that you have to speak of a benevolent creator. And certainly you don't have to be speaking about the God of the Bible for intelligent design. I have one other question um, related to the topic of tonight. So, my understanding was you gave two basic reasons for saying God to me. One is kind of the wonder of things that we have discovered in science that existing science is not really space obsolete. And then the wonder of things that we haven't understood yet, all these different mechanisms that are yet unexplained. Do you feel that as we grow in our scientific knowledge, that that answer to the question may change so that we learn more about these mechanisms? Absolutely. Absolutely. Science is, is so much fun. You are learning new things all the time. These mechanisms may become clear. So some people say, okay, if you get the mechanisms and they absolutely proved common descent, 
Would that shake you from being a Christian? I say, no, not at all. Not at all. It just means that I didn't interpret the book of Genesis properly. I misinterpret things all the time. All the time. So, so my, my interpretation may change based on evidence that's put before me. It's not going to shake my faith. That's rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But certainly, as we get more information, it may speak more toward communists. And I would tell you, the, the, the universal common descent will pile on more and more information that shows commonness. It will. There's so many people working on this, so much money being spent, and a lot of smart people. At the same time, there's going to be more and more information coming from projects like Project Project ENCODE and orphan genes and things we haven't even yet thought of today that are going to show uncommonness. Yeah. So, so we don't have a complete story yet. And in fact, the story that we have today is very different than the story that we had 30 years ago when I was starting my academic career. I mean, just in that... I know to, to you guys, 30 years ago, I got forever. But I mean, this is, this is like... This is just, just a, a nanosecond... In, in, in the scheme of, of, of where we are as human beings. Um, thanks so much for your talk. I know I was a chemistry major, and this has helped me a lot to do some direction and insight. Um, but you're talking about, um, as a Christian in the lab, and like your chemistry family and your department over there, and how some people have come to the Lord um, while you're there. Like, how do those conversations come about when you're kind of working in the lab? So, so I, I'm very sensitive to the differential of power, and so I I don't engage people directly if if they are under my charge, unless unless they ask me, or unless they are undergoing tremendous psychological problems and and, and, and social problems, and, and then I say, look, I'm going to tell you the only solution that I know. But in, in general, I don't because I think it's unfair because many people will will, will say yes because, because I, I control their career. So, so I, I'm very careful about that. So what I do is, is in group meetings, I say, look how good God is to me. Look what he's done. And I, I put a verse on the top of every one of my exams. I've done that since I was an assistant professor. I always put a verse on top. And it's usually a generic verse, but... But I figure if someone could put John Lennon, I can put Jesus Christ. So, and, and, and then I realized that students write verses back. The most common one is, blessed are the merciful. <laughs> and, and so, you know, students know where I stand. I put full page ads in the paper about Jesus Christ. And then I just put my website at the bottom. So, so um, people know who I am and where I stand. But what I do... It, 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 it's, it's, it's a very clever thing. You should do this. What I do is I have a few key believers in the department and I say, this is a guy you've got to go talk to. Go talk to him. He's, he's close. Or I'm going to be speaking at such and such a place. Go invite him to come to this thing. Or I will send a general, if I'm going to be speaking on the campus, I will send a general thing to my group saying, I'm speaking at such and such event. Wish you could come. 
Come if you like. Something like that. But, but, uh, but I have to be sensitive about it because I don't want to use my position. And that's especially important with international students because, because, uh, uh, because of that differential of power that they see all the more. I have to be particularly careful with it. But uh, uh, we've seen great success in Chinese students coming to the Lord. And I've got key Chinese students that I sick on them. And they go after them. Okay, we'll take, we'll take uh, uh, one more question and we're going to wrap this thing up. Hello. Over here. Okay. I'm wondering how inspired my plan prepared to end up working with the country to such as the one who oversees. So, so, so what was the question? How does inspiring Kevin end up doing what you could do? Okay, all right. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So, Look, I, I had no idea God would open these doors to me. No idea. But I do know that there are certain promises in the Bible. It, it says, so, so, so it, it says in Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. So he says, if you take this book, you're going to make your way prosperous. You're going to have success. Now, I don't have a, I don't, I don't, I don't have a prosperity gospel message for you. Not at all. Because the scriptures tell us that for all those who want to walk godly in Christ shall suffer. But Jesus made promises to us. He said, if you love me, you will keep my word. And my Father will love you. And we will come, we will come to him and make our abode with him. Jesus said that. So this is in the New Testament. There's numerous examples in the Old Testament. Psalm 1. Psalm 119, verse 97 through 100, of blessings that come if you meditate on the Word of God every day, every day, every day. So I take hold of those verses and I meditate on the Scriptures every day. There is no promise in the Bible for meditation on the Word of God three days a week. Maybe there's a blessing, maybe there isn't, I don't know. The promise is every day. That's the promise. And in many places it says day and night. So I always make it a practice to start my day with reading the scriptures and to end my day with reading the scriptures. Then I believe it in faith because whoever comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. He will reward you. I don't know what your reward will be. I don't know what your reward will be. But I do know that you will be rewarded if you seek God. And so I live my life in that way. I don't know what tomorrow is going to hold for me. I don't know what pains I'm going to undergo in life. But I do know that in the end, I will be rewarded if I seek Him. And I believe that. So the best thing that you can do is you seek Jesus Christ. You seek Him intentionally. You seek Him with purpose. You read the Scriptures every day of your life. That's how you can excel in your career. Then I suggest you also get counsel from those who can counsel you into this. So I had good counsel. You know, I was working for a guy that was a future Nobel Prize winner. He could give me a lot of good advice. His advisor knew me. He was a Nobel Prize winner. He could give me a lot of good advice. And I had these guys writing my letters for me. You know, you know so these, these are all important pieces because young people 
have no understanding of the power of human connections. They, 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 they don't understand this. And I, and I tell them, you have to meet this person. You have to meet this person. And, and it's very important because it's people are critical. They open doors for you. If they know you, if you're out of sight, you're out of mind. I mean, and, and, and it's very important that the connections and meeting people, I would work very hard. I was just an assistant professor. I'd be at these, you don't get an opportunity to speak at these chemical meetings. You, get a, you, you only can do a poster. And so I'm, I'm standing there at my poster and I'd see somebody famous walking by and I'd, I'd, I'd go up and I'd grab him by the arm and say, Professor Perchek, come here, I want to show you something. Hey guys, and I'd start talking about my poster in a really animated way. And I knew I had the guy because he, he starts looking down at my name tag. Then he knew me. He knew me. And so there's all these, these personal connections that are happening and you're building your network. And so what I did is when I was an assistant professor, I started inviting in people that were key to my area of research. I wanted them to know me, so I would invite them into the university to give lectures. It turns out that three people that I invited in my first year as an assistant professor, after that, subsequent to their coming and speaking, after I had invited them, all three of them won Nobel Prizes in chemistry. I think maybe partly because they came at <laughs> my invitation. But... But you see the level of people, that, because I knew that they would be reviewers of my proposals. They'd be reviewers of my papers. And the other thing that I did is I didn't just take them out to dinner. I brought them to my home for dinner. Because I thought if they see my wife and my little children, that they're going to think twice about giving me a bad review. I mean, the children. It's for the children's sake. Young people have no understanding of the power of this type of thing. In my generation, it was key, and it will work today. What I do is, is, is every Saturday, the first thing I do when I go into my office is I write about five handwritten notes. And I have stationery with my name on it, they're just little cards. And I write three or four sentences to somebody, somebody I met that week, somebody in the literature who published a great publication, and emails have no value because emails are a dime a dozen. But you write somebody a handwritten note. I go all over the world and people say, hey, come here. And they show me their bulletin board. And my note to them from eight years ago is up on the wall. And I keep a record of everyone that I've ever written to. And I, and I, and I, I would always write to the president. I invited the president over for dinner to my home, the president of the university, not the president of the United States, <laughs> the president of the university, when I was an assistant professor into my home to see my wife and to see my children, my colleagues. You invited the president? What are you doing? I mean, why don't you start with the department chair and then work your way up to the dean? And, uh, and then they said, well, when you have them in your home, why don't, why don't you just like, dress your kids in rags and say, well, that's the best I can do on what you're paying. <laughs> but, but anyway, I was able to make tremendous relationships that way. So relationships are very important. Okay? We'll end it there. God bless you. Thank you very much.